10.45. Let's do it together. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to go ahead and grab my text. I'm going to go old school here just a little bit uh, from the ESV. And you can just look along with me as, uh, as I read from verse 9 through 20. Now when he arose, early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Everybody say they didn't believe. Okay, after these things, verse 12, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not what? Look at this, because this is critical as we set this thing up for what we're about to call the Great Commission Belief, faith is going to be the critical factor. They didn't believe. They didn't believe twice. Here we go, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, and they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their what? Unbelief. Here we go. And hardness of heart, because they had not what? They had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever what? What is that? Whoever believes. Where are we there yet? Death. Thank you. I'm, no wonder you guys didn't know what it was. It hadn't even clicked yet. Here, whoever believes. What, are, what is it? What are you supposed to do here? Whoever believes. Okay. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not want. You see what the theme is here in this whole passage? It's about belief. Do you have faith? Or are you walking in unbelief? But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who what? Oh my goodness. How many times so far? In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Verse 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Bow your heads with me, please, for a word of prayer. Great and mighty God, thank you today for giving us the gift of faith. Thank you that our salvation begins because of your hand of grace reaching to us. Thank you, Lord, that even our ability to respond to that is not even in our own strength. It's something that you give. You give us the faith also to be able to receive the grace gift. Let us walk in faithfulness today to be believers and not doubters, to, to embrace the promises of God and all that you have for us. Thank you for Jesus who died for us. We believe that. We believe uh, that you were raised from the dead as we've celebrated this last Sunday and as we should as believers celebrate it every day of our lives. Open our hearts today. We stand before you and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you do only what you can do. I can't do it. I'm not a good enough preacher uh, God, not a, not a good enough speaker, I ask you, Holy Spirit, that, that you would just open hearts, that you would transform lives, that you would help us to see the, the bigness, the vastness of the gospel, that it's not just about a home in heaven, but it's about so much more, all of that and so much more. God, we thank you for today. Bless us, guide us, guard us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. We are at the final in this series, after having labored through it now for 42 Sundays, 
I think just the coincidence that it happened to hit at 42, but I think it's kind of cool that it did. There were 40 second, 42 generations that are listed in the New Testament in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There were 42 encampments, literally, from the time they left Egypt and when they entered the Promised Land. And I'm not saying that there's anything uniquely special about the fact. I just was pointing out that there's something very powerful about 42, and we've, we've hit this gospel, and it just happened to land on 42, and I thought about that this morning. Um, Rick Warren is a significant leader in the body of Christ, uh, pastor Saddleback Community Church. It is a Southern Baptist fellowship. A tremendous leader of leaders, wrote a book way back in, I think it was 1992, 93, on the purpose-driven church that I read. Uh, and then later he sort of took those same materials and applied them personally to individual lives. And he called it The Purpose Driven Life. And it sold, multiplied millions of copies. I think it stayed on the New York bestsellers list for probably a couple of years or maybe even longer. Uh, certainly rivaling Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People that was there about the same length of time. Um, he said this. He said this back in the original one, which was the Purpose Driven Church in the 1990s. He said, a great church is built on a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission. I'd like you to find a screen, read that, or maybe your notes. Let's say it together. Here we go. A great church is built on a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission. We want to be a great church. We want to be a great church not to make a name for ourselves. We want to be a great church because God has called us to be a great church, to touch the area in which we live. Um, the way that we can do that is for every individual member to recognize the importance of being committed to the two big great things that God considers what he calls great in the Gospels, the great commandment. You remember that one. That's to love God and to love people. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's the upward reach of the, the, the bar of the cross and reaching up to God. And it's the outward reach to our neighbors. It's loving God and it's loving people. It's, it's recognizing that uh, a cross taken up daily means that I must lay down and die to my own selfish wishes and love God and honor Him. And I must die to my selfish wishes and love people and honor them, honor the Lord who created them, even in their brokenness, even in their sinfulness. And so today, as we launch this last message, we have been talking about the gospel, the differentiation between religion, which offers advice, and gospel, which is good news. Remember the story that Mark tells us is actually the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' three, sort of an inter inner circle of Jesus' three disciples, Pete, Jim, and John. You remember every time, everywhere he went, it was... He would, the other guys, I'm sure, were going every, all the time. He calls Pete, Jim, and John. Pete, Jim, it's Peter, James, and John, okay? And so everywhere Jesus was, he had the 12, but he also took the three and sort of, um, I think, was schooling them on a little different level of discipling, on mentoring. And uh, this Peter was on the inside. This one is telling his story to a young disciple of his by the name of John Mark. Mark writes this stuff down and as we close this chapter today there are just a few points that I briefly want to bring and uh, I think maybe that God may give us an amen with a thunderclap once in a while so uh, we'll, we'll just pay attention. As we begin this morning we, we want to remember that what we've talked about this whole time is about being gospel centered. It is about the gospel of God. The gospel is meant to transform us so we can transform the world. The gospel is meant to transform us. 
So we can transform the world. If you would please really pay attention. I want to get through this message this morning. Gospel is meant to transform us so we can transform the world. It is the good news. It is the factual record being stated of what has already taken place in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it affects us. It is not just a heaven proposition. It is not just about um, a, a home in glory land. But it's about a lifestyle that has changed us. It's about a whole new kind of life. It's, uh, eternity, first of all, is completely misunderstood in the American mindset. It's not a long time. Eternity is no time at all. Really, eternity is not quantitatively measured because it can't be since there is, it's infinite, okay? So quantitative is not even an issue. But it's quality of life. Eternal life is something that enters you at the new birth. It's not something you're going to get one of these days in the sweet by and by. But it's right now. You have a whole new kind of life operating on the inside of you. You can say, man, it's okay. All right, am I going to wait for the thunderclap to help me this morning? The gospel is meant to transform us so we can transform the world. Number two, the church at its heart is a missional community. The church at its heart is a missional community. We are to be a people on mission. What this means is, as a matter of fact, we state this in the creeds. We talk about one holy apostolic Catholic church uh, recognized in the creeds. The, the Nicene says that. It, it is not about uh, uh, a particular, when we say apostolic, we don't mean the Acts 2.38 oneness uh, group. Uh, but we mean apostolic in the biblical sense of what me, the word means. It means sent. Okay, so we are to be a people sent. Somebody is thinking, okay, well, David McDaniel's here. He was sent to Afghanistan. We support Matt Black. He's been sent to Turkey. And, and we support Haven Jaggers. She's sent to the campus of uh, University of Central Arkansas. And we could go down our list of people that we support and missions organizations that we give to and people that have come in and out of here over the years and that we give to. That's really not what's being said here. We're talking about a whole people that are being sent to a community in which we live. You are sent by God, okay? It's so easy to sort of put it off and go, well, that's not for me. That's a special group of called people or special ministry. Uh, that's folks that have spent time in Bible school or school of ministry training or possibly even seminary or they've been really educated and that's not me. I, I don't know the Bible to that degree. Let me, just, let me just undo and unpack every bit of all of that. This has nothing to do with that kind of professional level ministry. This is the fact that you as a believer are sent to the street you live on. You are sent. You're to be on mission. Are you hearing me? Okay. So the church at its heart is to be a missional community. Greek word ecclesia. Some call it ecclesia. Heard two or three folks give us a number of different pronunciations. Ecclesia or ecclesia, either one. It means called out to influence. It was a, a very interesting term in first century uh, Roman Empire. It, it was a word that was used to signify a group of people like the senators in the Roman Senate that were called out to lead. As a matter of fact, a group like that would literally be referred to as an ecclesia or an ecclesia. We get the English word ecclesiastical from it. And it has to do with typically the, the policy and how a local church is run or governed. So we're talking about leadership, okay? And again, it's so easy to just sort of disqualify ourselves from that and go, well, you know, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a pastor, I'm not even a life group leader. 
And again, it has nothing to do with those kinds of titles. It is every believer is in the ecclesia. You are called out to influence. You are called out to be on mission at your job. The person in the cubicle across from you, you have been sent by God, apostello. You are part of the apostolic sending of God in this community. The church is to be the sent people of God on mission. All right, good. So two points. Number three, we're moving quickly this morning. God's original intention for man is found in Genesis chapter 1. It's called the cultural mandate. Uh, some refer to it as the dominion mandate. Because the Elohim said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them subdue the earth and multiply, reproduce. Uh, I, I truly believe with all of my heart that because of the details that are given to us in the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts of, uh, of the creation is that there were literally four rivers that were headed out and that, that it was the intention of God to take what was in the Garden of Eden and literally eventually cause it to cover the whole face of the earth. That God would plant something like a seed and then see it multiply. Like yeast that has put into the flour and it eventually affects, it influences the whole lump. The yeast was on mission. The seed is sent. It has a purpose. It is going to bring change. It's, it's, it's crazy how a little bitty tiny seed has the ability to, to crack open the side of a mountain or to move a big heavy piece of concrete, move a sidewalk out of the way so that a tree can begin to grow. It can get in a little bitty tiny crack. See, see, really all God needs is just a little tiny opening in your heart to plant a seed and, and that seed can begin to move mountains. That seed can begin to uh, bust up all kinds of obstacles in your life. Come on, I know that the, the, it's weird. The, the humidity is messing with some of you and, and, and maybe you feel a little strange this morning, but just come on, just pretend like you're having a good time in church with me, okay? Go ahead. Can, can, can you just sort of fake it till you make it? Is that all right? How many of you know we shouldn't be faking our praise to God? God's intention is to make you a person of influence in your community, on your job, in your family, to replicate. Somebody says, well, yeah, but sin entered in. Well, that never changed the commandment of God, the mandate of God, the cultural mandate to go forward and reproduce and to have dominion in the earth. That never changed. We just have to deal with the outcome of that decision of disobedience. It's not something that was only for those folks in the beginning and then now in the New Testament we don't think about that. Because I'm going to tell you, I truly honestly believe that the Great Commission is the affirmation of the same thing in the New Covenant. It is the restatement of going into all the world and taking the seed of God, being the sent people, being the apostolic, being the missional, being the influential, being the ecclesia, being the called out, being the church the people of God. Now the dominion mandate has become discipling nations. And notice it's not just individuals, but God talks about discipling nations. Every one of these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which each give a different picture of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, talks about the four-faced man this, this, this creature, which is literally a picture of the four faces of the new creation man. One is of a lion, one's of an ox, one is of an eagle, one is of a man. 
And, and, and literally, I gave you those in the order in which the Gospels in, in, in Matthew, uh, he is shown, Jesus Christ is demonstrated to being the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of the Jews. So in that respect, he is the conquering king. In Mark, we've talked about this serving one, this, this ox, this burden bearer who didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to get up under the needs of the world and to ransom his life for many. That's what the Bible says. And so we've got the lion and the ox, and we've got uh, the man, which is Luke. Luke. Luke was a physician. He wrote about the perfection of the Son of Man. That's the phrase that repeats over and over and over in the Gospel of Luke, over and over and over and over, is the Son of Man. And Luke was writing particularly to the Greek culture because of their appreciation of uh, humanity in its what they perceived to be perfection. Because if you'll remember, all of the, the architecture and the art that came out of the Greek entered into the Roman Empire, and then we grabbed a hold of it again in the Renaissance, which was the rebirth of Greek and Roman culture. And there were all of these statues of beautiful women and of muscled-up men and so it was, it was supposed to be representative of the perfection of humanity. And so Luke writes talking about how great the Son of Man is. And then John finishes up with the eagle, which is the Son of God. And that's the, the, the phrase that is used most descriptively about Jesus in the Gospel of John. He is the Son of God. He is Lion of Judah. He is the ox, the burden bearer, our sin bearer. He is the perfect man and he is God in the flesh. He is Son of God. Somebody say amen. And so when we see this, now every one of these Gospels ends with what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the sending. And it's so easy to just say, okay, well, that's that professional level of ministry. These are those people who feel a special calling to be preachers or to be missionaries. And, and, and what I want you to see is that in every one of these, we, we see this sending of go into the world. And when you literally look at the Greek construction, it says, as you are going into the world. So when you get up and head to work tomorrow, as you're going into the world, make disciples of all nations. As you're going into the world, preach the gospel. Whatever the need is, if you will be a believer, if you will believe and put your trust in God, God says, I will cause the power of God to be there if you will be obedient and be faith-filled to my word. Remember this, next point. The first thing out of the resurrected Jesus' mouth was a rebuke because of unbelief. Now, if, if that's anything, if there's anything that the 21st century church struggles with, right here in the good old Delta, right here in what Ted Koppel in the 1990s, following the end of the PTL Jimmy Swaggart scandals, they held it over at Central Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and they had a special nightline. And Ted Koppel said, if the South is the Bible Belt, then Memphis is the buckle on the belt. And so there is a, there is a mentality. There is an overarching sort of a prevailing spirit or, an, or a mindset that hangs over the, the, the South and the Bible Belt. And it's, there's a lot of religiosity it's, that is not gospel-centered, but it's all about advice and it's it's very legalistic and it's very pharisaical. And it's very, let's make sure that we always keep the quote traditions. And traditions are not necessarily a bad thing until you start to worship them. Am I doing okay this morning? So the first thing Jesus comes out of his mouth is he's rebuking all of these people who didn't believe 
when folks gave their eyewitness account and said, look, I've seen the risen Savior, he's alive, out of Mary Magdalene's mouth. And the two that he appeared to, I believe that in Mark was alluding to those that were on the road to Emmaus. They were walking out into the country is what Mark says. And so then Jesus appears to the group and he's reclining at the table and when he finally shows up and there were even some there at that point when you see the closing of the Gospel of John, Thomas said, you know what, I'll I see you but until I stick my finger in that hole in your wrist and your hand and I thrust my hand into your side, I'm not going to believe. Well, come on, Thomas. Come on, I'll help you out here. But Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see yet believe. And so the issue has to become, the emphasis in this whole passage has to do with belief and unbelief. And I think right now that answers the next question that I've set up for my point as I move through this text this morning. Why don't we see this today? Uh, and before I get into that, in terms of these signs shall follow them that believe, they shall lay hands on the sick, they shall recover, they shall take up serpents, they drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. There are a number of different translations of the scripture and some of the newer ones will say these words are not found in some of the manuscripts in some of the earliest manuscripts. As a matter of fact, you're holding an ESV in your lap this morning. That's what mine says right here in little bitty italics inside a bracket. It says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And it just so happens to center around the fact that what we've now found is in terms of the oldest, verifiably at this point, the oldest copy of the extant copy of the Gospel of Mark, that there is a break in it and there was a fragment that they believe was lost and that a copyist came in later and added these words. There are other manuscripts that have this. I, I'm not going to take a long time devoting to that discussion this morning. Let me just be safe to say this, is that when you read all of the other passages in the, in the commission and when you read what's going on in the New Testament, even if these words do not belong with Mark, and it would really make it strange. Mark would have just stopped and ended it abruptly and wouldn't have included uh, ascending, which doesn't make sense. I mean, it does make sense that he did and that the, the piece of the, the fragment was broken and lost and we, we, you know, we don't have it and that somebody else might have come in and copied the words and added these. Either way, regardless, what's stated here appears all over the rest of the New Testament several times anyway. So this idea of being sent and the commissioning of God and believing and, and the word of the Lord confirming every time the gospel is on a frontier, we see dramatic things happen. That's because usually people uh, that are the most receptive to the gospel are usually broken and impoverished. That's the reason many times, and it's, it's been proven century after century after two millennia now, that usually the rich who don't have need of much usually don't respond to the gospel with any great degree because they don't think they need anything. I mean, let's just, let's just face the reality here. There is nothing sinful about being very, very blessed and being wealthy, but wealth has the ability to deceive us. And if you're living on the ninth hole in a, at an just a, an amazing mansion behind a, a, a glorious, beautiful golf course. And, and everything is pretty much going great. Your 401k is exploding. Your stock portfolio is good. Your wife loves you. Your kids, you know, at least if they've kept them out of jail, you know, you're, you got a little bit of a testimony in some ways, maybe even if you're not following God. When you're in that kind of a scenario, you really don't think you need God because wealth has this ability to fool us 
and make us think that we can buy whatever we need. And so too many times it's proven over and over again that the real influence of the gospel happens on and among the marginalized, those that just don't have everything handed to them, those that have those who, who, who sometimes don't know where their next meal is coming from. They're desperate, so they cry out in desperation and they <coughs> pardon me, they lift up their hearts in faith, and God responds to that faith. You know, you can have all the money in the world, and if you've got unbelief in your heart, there's not going to be any action in the sense of God showing up and doing crazy things in your life, apart from the sovereign, providential, His drawing. Certainly, I believe He does that. But most of the time, those folks are not looking for anything. They think they've really pretty much got the, the whole world by the tail, so to speak. And so, <clears throat> among the poor, among the impoverished, it's where we see... Uh, the gospel have the greatest effect. And Jesus said, when you go, you preach good news to the poor. That is, they can be released from the, the poverty, of the mentality of the, the fact that they can, don't always have to be on the bottom in everything that they do. That, that Jesus Christ has come to set them free, to open blind eyes. Yes, spiritual, but also physical. To unstop deaf ears. Yes, spiritual to understand the gospel, but also to, to heal and manifest His greatness and His power in, in the physical region. Why is it that we would believe the covenant of God will, 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 is sufficient for my spiritual man, but it won't heal my physical body? It, it's, it's crazy that to people to, to, to claim, the, the book of Hebrews says that we have a better covenant based upon better promises that are solid because of a better resurrection. And yet I have people that will tell me that God doesn't do any of that anymore today, but they yet tell me that they believe the new covenant's better than the old, and He heals sick people every day in the old covenant. Miraculous. I believe we don't see it because of the issue that Jesus brings up here. He rebuked them because of their unbelief. Now, I don't want to have an argument about the difference between cessationism and continuationism or continualism, whichever term you use. One believes the miraculous ceased Centuries ago, the other one believes the miraculous continues. And I just want to be honest with you. I'm somewhere in the middle. Because I, I, I don't believe that God does none of that anymore. I, I certainly can't agree with a cessationist. But there's some folks, and I am a charismatic, but this is where I have to pull back from that, is that it, it, it's like it's, it's, it's a manufactured, constantly looking for a manifestation, whipping up the crowd and making claims. And then when you really evaluate and investigate, the claims are not as solid as they would like for us to believe. I'll tell you, I've seen God do outrageous stuff that is indescribable. When I've gone to foreign nations, and I don't mean this in a pejorative kind of way, it's just the truth, it's the fact of the matter. Even Southern Baptists, when they go on a mission trip, will, will see come, they'll, they'll leave the country being a cessationist and come home softened up to the work of the Holy Spirit a little bit because usually by the time they get over there, the Lord will show out a little bit and they'll go, okay, I don't know how to explain that. And it does, certainly doesn't happen to me every day. And my whole point in the middle of this, and, and, and I'd like to go ahead and just jump, jump to my next point, um, the Bible says that, that he will confirm signs followed. He's confirming signs followed believers, not some special group of called out ministry. But it has to do with whether or not you are walking in a place of faith that is operating in the present reality of the kingdom of God. Is your faith now? Is it now in God's ability of what he's able to do? I, I, I think instead of worrying about 
uh, whether you are replicating every one of these things that are listed in, in Mark 16, it is just being open and present to the work of the Holy Spirit to work in your life and in the neighbor's life to say, hey, I'm going to pray for you and then expect God to show up however he does it. And I, God will blow your mind and the neighbor's too. And it's amazing how when that neighbor is on the margin of hearing the gospel and the Lord transforming their heart for the first time, those are the places where God shows out, where people, where people start to believe, where unbelief is not the problem. Far too many times the church is so filled with unbelief that we don't see anything. And I think it has everything to do with what Jesus said. He healed sick. He raised the dead. He opened blind eyes. He, he, he caused the lame to walk, except when he went to his own hometown in Nazareth. And Jesus said himself, he could not do many mighty works among them because of their what? Unbelief. And this whole passage wrestles with that fact, saying, look, the, and Jesus rebukes them because they didn't believe. In so many circles, the gospel is just is a reductionist proposition. It's just only about a house in glory, a home in heaven. Am I, am I, am I, am I making fun of that? Absolutely not. I, I believe that the eternity that we're going to experience with God is just so beyond description. It's eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. I don't think any 1930s gospel song written in the middle of a Great Depression kind of a of a poverty and everything that, that has shaped our perception about heaven came out of southern gospel music and my folks were in the middle of it. They were bathed in the Great Depression and so everything they experienced was opposite of what they grew up in this life. Didn't know where the next meal was coming from sometimes. My dad was one of 12 and when the Depression hit, it hit Savannah, Arkansas hard. And people loving Jesus and singing great gospel songs that really are just not even biblical. Just build me a little cabin over in the corner of glory. Well, if we're going to have one, baby, I want a big mansion. But think about this. If everybody's got one, if you have one and your wife has one and all your children and grandchildren all have a 40-room mansion, what are all those rooms? They're not bedrooms because there's not going to be any night. Because we're not going to sleep because the lamb is the light. You have a new body, a resurrected body. And if we're going, if, I mean, is there going to be a kitchen? Who's going to cook? Who's going to clean up? <laughs> well, we're going to have the big marriage supper of the Lamb, so we don't. I mean, what are, what, what's all that for? What are all these big rooms and, and just all this stuff that's been built around? And it, it got built out of this whole Great Depression era theology of, of, of a poverty on this side, and I'll get it on the other. And I'm not doing away with streets of gold. I just think it's not the kind of gold we're talking about here because the scripture says it was transparent gold. It was gold you could see through. I think it's so much greater and it's just amazing that we're seeing all of these Christian movies come out in this day right now with Son of God and with Noah. And I know that a couple of folks have some issues about that. But oh my goodness, at least people are talking about the Bible. Okay, and, and, and then heaven is for real. And my great good friend, Dr. Rice Brooks, that I've been associated with for over 25 years, wrote the book God's Not Dead. It inspired the Newsboys song that we sing, and then the movie was made from that, God's Not Dead. So I directly know the folks that are involved in that. That's great stuff that's happening. It's happening all over the world. When I, when I went to Indonesia, I saw God open the eyes of a blind girl. I laid hands on her. I didn't heal her. Jesus did it. It blew me away. I just said, you've got to be kidding me. Are you hearing me this morning? I, I, I want you to see 
the importance of what we're saying here. These signs will follow people that believe. Well, guess what? If you don't believe, there's not going to be these kinds of unexplainable, the cessationist says, acts of the providence of God. Okay, fine, I don't care. Let's, let's, let's not make this some kind of you know, pedantic sort of a sophomoric argument back and forth. Whether, you know, charismatics talk too much about, uh, I mean, it's like they have a running commentary with God. The Lord told me, the Lord told me, the Lord told me. And it's like four or five times a day the Lord's talking and I want to go, okay, that's a little unreasonable too. So see what I'm saying? I can't be a cessationist and I can't jump over here into this camp where a lot of hooplas ended up being created. We will never whip this crowd up. Are you hearing me this morning? I'll pray for you, we'll lay hands on you, we'll obey the word that says, if there's any sick among you, James 5, let them call for the elders of the church, anoint with oil, prayer of faith will save the sick. It's amazing to me how God does it in different ways. Some will see an instantaneous response. Others, the Bible says, they recover, so you get better over a period of time. And you know what? I don't have the word. I, don't, I can't explain it. I'm not God. There are some folks who don't get fully healed and restored until they wake open and the first thing they see in the other side of glory is Jesus. But they're healed there, okay? I don't, I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I can't say it never happens with the cessationist, and I can't say with the complete charismatic, charismania craziness on this side that it always happens, and if it doesn't, it's because you don't have enough faith. Great friend of mine, pastor, beautiful pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas, Beautiful family, husband and wife, pastoring a church. Lost a son that died. And they'd, they'd had faith. They trusted God, trying to believe God for healing. And somebody had the gall to knock on that man's door and stand in his face and say, your son died because of your lack of faith. And that's when I want to lay hands on people suddenly. <laughs> and take your legalistic, pharisaical theology and get out of my face. So this is my next point that I've been trying to get to right here. Living on mission from the marvelous middle. D don't, don't let either camp try to pull you into it and say, God doesn't do any of that at all, or God always every time will do it the way you pray for him to do it. But just live in the middle. Live in the middle of just trusting in just raw, childlike faith to say, God, I'm not going to let either side sway me, but I just believe that you're God. And because you've said, if I would believe you, that you would cause the confirmation of your word, your gospel in my life. Are you hearing me this morning? Just, just live from the marvelous middle. A couple of things and I'll be finished this morning. Now, let me just say this. I don't have my big clock. I don't know what happened to be able to see where I am. That's the reason I've been preaching such good short messages lately, because they've got... <laughs> They've got numbers back here that are this big, and I see what time it is. <laughs> but I just now see it, and I still have two points. Um, Perry Reginelli is part of our church, and he had seen the National Geographic TV show called Snake Salvation. Have you, any of you seen that? Where it's some snake handling churches over in Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina. And uh, the guy, thank you, there it is. see my... My big clock's back there now. Um, the guy who was the, the primary leader in sort of discipling a, another young one just about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, was bitten by a rattlesnake and he died. And, uh, you know, it just broke my heart. And 
Everything that they do in their little church is all centered around this one passage of Scripture. They shall take up serpents. And, and so my whole point in this is that a little common sense is so helpful. The only time you find anybody handling a snake in the New Testament is when the Apostle Paul lands at the island, I believe it's Miletus, and there is a fire, and he is messing around with some of the logs, and a serpent comes up out of the logs and bites him on the hand. And all of the natives, the indigenous peoples, immediately said, he must be a criminal because the gods have judged him and we will see him die. I mean, it's just the expectation. He shook the serpent off. He didn't gather it up and... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a little bit of a Dennis the Menace this morning. He didn't handle the snake and he didn't kiss the... You know, he didn't do anything stupid or funky or weird. The only time you see anybody in the New Testament handling a snake is this one demonstration when Paul shook it off into the fire, which means the thing died. Hallelujah. That's theology right there for me, that the only good snake is a dead snake in the name of Jesus. My grandfather, see, we've got the affirmation right there. My first one we had the whole message, rather. <laughs> I'm teasing. My grandfather was in the Pentecostal movement, got saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues. He was known as a healer. People would bring sick people by his house, little uneducated man, 138 Pecan Street in Marktree, Arkansas. And I grew up hearing my grandfather talk about some folks that he knew that got into the snake handling thing, and he said, no, I, he said, those folks don't have any sins. And I just want to tell you, I've been up around real true Pentecost where the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is there and God does un things that are unexplainable. And Granddad just said, you know, common sense will tell you, you don't tempt God. And that was, I said, oh, that's all I need right there. Hallelujah. Now, these folks drink strychnine. They play with fire. And, and, and I, and I want to go, okay, have you missed all of those passages where Satan tried to tempt Jesus and Jesus said, you know, he, he would quote the word back to the enemy and he would, you know, hey, listen, you know, if you throw yourself down and the angels of God will throw, you know, gird you up and even if you dash your foot against a stone. And, and Jesus would respond with a word every time. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God and worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And he responds with the word every time. Uh, I believe that if I'm out and I don't have a shotgun to blow ahead in the hole of that cotton mouth, that if I'm out on the mission field and I get bitten, I believe that Jesus and His power, His anointing, His Holy Spirit will protect me. I do not believe that that gives me the audacity and the arrogance to go pick it up and play with it and call that faith. That's not faith. That is presumption. I'd like a good amen here. Okay? A little common sense is so helpful. It's, you want to see the only time there was snake handling in the Bible, open up and read the book of Acts. Paul shook it under the fire. And this is the crazy thing. Now we've got the natives that one minute are saying he must be a criminal, he's cursed by God. Then when he lives, they, they went to the opposite extreme and says, oh, he must be a God. <laughs> and you know, that's sometimes how the people of God treat the ministry. Because a little bad thing happens in the pastor's life and, well, it must be God judging him. And then something good happens. Oh, he's a God. Well, you see, neither one of those are, those are extremes and they're not real. We need to just realize that we are all human beings and we walk through difficult times and sometimes we get bitten by some serpents in life and we have to shake them off into the fire. 
If we're walking with the Lord and doing the gospel, there's not a serpent at your work that can bite you and take you down. God's got his, his, his hand on you. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me? It's not all natural. There's a spiritual application. All right, finally, and we're finished this morning. The point is to trust God to confirm the gospel through your obedience and faith. If you will just believe and you will take the gospel, live out the message, be a person, a man, a woman sent, be on mission. That doesn't mean that you've got to pass out 100 tracks every day. If you have a heart for that, then please, by all means. But it means that you're open to relationships that are being built with people around you. And when they start to ask the question, and I guarantee you, if you get close enough to someone, they'll start to say, why do you believe? And all, don't, don't, don't do, do not even entertain the idea of arguing theology with people. Your greatest tool in your pocket is the testimony of what God has done in your life. Because nobody can argue with that. I once was, but now I'm. I once was blind, but now I see. I, I, I was in bondage to drugs, but now I'm free. I, I, I was this, but now God has made me that. So whatever your story is, the test that you went through that God made into a testimony, the mess that your life was in that God transformed into a message for His glory, that is the most powerful tool you have to advance the kingdom of God in the lives of people around you, if you will just open up and do that and just out of a loving heart share how good God is and how much He loves that person that's struggling in the cubicle across from you or across the fence in your neighborhood. And just, just talk about how wonderful Jesus is. And you know what? That'll capture the hearts of people and they'll be ready to go, man, what's going on? How, how did you get this? I mean, I, I've never heard people be so alive and talk about God and about the Bible and you just make me hungry. It's, it's, it's amazing how people start getting hungry to know who you're talking about. And somebody like that, you don't have to have 10 points to be able to lead them to Christ. You just say, come on, I'll pray with you right now. Jesus, thank you for this brother. Thank you, Jesus, for this sister. It's amazing what God can do. If we will be the church on mission, if we will obey the word of the Lord, the Bible says these signs, he, he, they went forth and God confirmed the word with signs. And I, and I believe that we don't look for signs, that we don't make that the point. The point is Jesus. Let me say one more thing and I'm going to finish right now. We cannot ever expect the miraculous to cause anybody to be faithful. A steady diet of the miraculous, the true, real miraculous, has never kept anybody faithful. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what he's doing with that. I don't necessarily, it makes me a little uncomfortable because I believe in the miraculous, okay? Some of you are thinking, what's he doing? Yes, I believe in the miraculous too, but remember, folks just got delivered by the blood, water, and the spirit. They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, and they're not 30 days into it till they took their jewelry off, burned it in the fire, and raised up a golden calf and bowed down and started worshiping. When they didn't know where Moses was for a little longer than they thought he should have, shouldn't have been out. Every morning they got up and their breakfast is on the lawn. Just go out and pick up manna. It's a miracle of God. Manna doesn't mean bread. Manna is a question. Mana, what is it? So, I, hey, honey, go out. I'm going to go pick up some what is it so we can eat today. It's a miracle every day. The, the, the meal is out there on the yard and you just have to go out and pick it up. In the middle of all of that, there were still people who did not keep their hearts faithful and right in trusting God. You can see miraculous things happen. That's why a lot of times you see people in ministry 
gifted because their lives and ministries are built on this con constant reproduction of miraculous things and they lose the relationship and it, they don't keep it Jesus-centered. Listen, nobody can, no, no, nobody can satisfy you. I mean, miracles are exciting, but then the, the new wears off and you come down off the mountain and you got to have another one. Listen, the only thing that can keep you faithful is Jesus. You fall in love with Jesus. It's Jesus in your heart. And that means sometimes he shows up and he gives you a miracle to deliver you. Sometimes he gets in the boat in the middle of the storm and he rides it out with you. What is that song that's been popular the last five years or so? Sometimes he speaks to the storm and sometimes he speaks to the storm in me. Sometimes he ends it and I'm out of it. Sometimes he gets in it and he walks me through it until I'm on the other side. And it's those kinds of experiences where real endurance that produces character, that builds hope, and all of that comes from suffering. And the American church does not like the word suffering. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to hear about it. We rebuke it. We bind it in the name of Jesus. And the real amazing things that are happening all over the rest of the world are where the church is being persecuted, where the church is suffering. And we've lost contact with that because we can fix it with a pill. We can fix it with a visit to this specialist or we can refinance that or we can manipulate it and just finagle around. We can do so many things in our own strength because we're so blessed in this superpower first world country that even though nobody sitting here is a b, -b, 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 b billionaire, still we can be lulled into our little middle class lifestyle of thinking that we don't really need anything. The greatest test is not poverty. The greatest test is prosperity. Because when you don't have anything, you've got to stay prayed up. Don't shout me down. The real test is when God can bless your socks off of you and you still can get on your face and go, God, apart from you, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing. Apart from you, I, I'm, I'm worthless. I have nothing. Jesus, I need you. I, I'm desperate for you. I want you. So this morning as we close this message, bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer.